0: I'm Rebecca Lavoie and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary
1: film, The Devil on Trial. A defense attorney in Connecticut will try to prove his client is not guilty of murder because the 19-year-old defendant allegedly said that he was
0: possessed by the devil at the time of the killing. Today, we're talking to director Chris Holt. In 1980, the Glatzel's son, David, began having convulsions. A pair of self-styled ghost hunters declared the eight-year-old was possessed by the devil. The family turned to the church to help, but something went wrong during the exorcism. His sister's boyfriend challenged Satan to take him on instead. Months later, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was accused of murdering his landlord. The case made headlines when Johnson told the court, "...the devil made him do it." including first-hand accounts and audio from the incidents, the devil on trial untangles whether the child's fits were the result of demonic possession and how they may have played a role in Johnson's subsequent attack. And if the cause wasn't supernatural, what actually was happening in that house?
1: I'd like to make sure my family's portrayed with the accuracy that it should be. I know some people have fabricated some stories, and I'm not happy with that. So I like to set the record straight.
0: And I'm joined now by director Chris Holt. Chris, welcome to You Can't Make This Up.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So Chris, how did you hear about the story of the Glatzels and Arnie Cheyenne Johnson?
2: Well, I was aware of the Conjuring films to begin with. um, And an exec friend of mine at Dorothy Street Pictures rang me one day and said, we have this story and it's, it's the true story behind The Conjuring 3. And I, I sort of instantly said, it's great, no way. There's no way that I want to work on, on that film. <laughs> uh, I'd made a paranormal film about 10 years ago and it was like being lied to for weeks and weeks on end by everybody. It was just so difficult to get to the truth. And I, I just thought, I'm never making another paranormal film again. And she said to me, look, it's, it's not going to be like that. What we want to do, what we want to try and do is get the brothers the three brothers, uh, and Arnie Johnson in a room and sit them down and and have them tell us their story. Um, And not to try and prove it, not to try and disprove it, but just to sort of weigh up the evidence and weigh up what they thought happened. And once she said that, and once I did a bit more sort of, once I deep dived a little bit more into the story, I was kind of interested.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty fair to say that sometimes people can, what somebody says happened and what really happened can be different, but that doesn't necessarily mean that what someone believes to be true doesn't mean that they are lying about something, right? I mean, it's hard to really yeah. parse that out sometimes, yeah.
2: right? Yeah, I think you do get people who do tell lies. Um, I think that there are people that tell lies, and I think that the problem is 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 that the brothers will be sort of tarred with that brush, really. But I don't think I, I did sit down in front of David and Arnie and um, uh, Alan and Carl. And for hours on end, I mean, really, hours on end. And their stories never change. You can tell when someone is lying because to be a good liar, you need to have a good memory. Yeah. And generally, most people don't have that good a memory.
0: Yeah.
2: Um. But I never found the boys, the brothers, to be telling me lies. Um. Really. So, so yeah, I I think they were telling me the truth. Now it's their interpretations of the truth, as you right. say, right? Rather than it being a hard and fat truth. But but they believed, and I believed that they believed that what they were saying was truthful. Yeah.
0: So some of the people in this film say they've never spoken out before about what happened. So why do you think they're coming forward now?
2: I don't know. To be honest with you, that was the hardest thing about making this film. And I think only Netflix could make this film because it just took a long time waiting for them to to appear, really. The story really sort of damaged the whole family, really. And nobody wanted to talk about this. Nobody wanted to um, to approach this, apart from Carl. I think Carl was the, was the real instigator of this film. He was the one that had the archive and he was the one that, that had always quite vocally said that it never really happened. So, so we had him on board and he was, he was willing to talk to us. Um, but the other two brothers were, were very difficult to track down. We actually had to stake out a coffee shop in Connecticut for a period of time, trying to find David because David just sort of disappeared off the map. Huh. Um, and we we hung around in lots of hotel rooms waiting for the call and waiting to get through to him. We came over to America to film about four, three or four times. And we were just flying home and we got a phone call and it was David. And he said, yes, I will talk to you. So we got back home and I think the next week or so we flew back out to speak to David and, and to try and get him to sort of appear.
0: So the family dynamics are still broken then because it's hard not to notice that they're never in a room together. You've interviewed them all separately, right?
2: Ideally, I think at the very start of this, the idea would be to have them all in one room and have them talking about it together at some point anyway. Um, that was definitely discussed. That was never going to happen. Um, the brothers really, they're, they're, there's issues there between the brothers. I don't want to speak for them, but yeah, we can tell from the film that they are, um, because they believe very differently what happened. They, they They're not... They're not sort of able to sort of sit down and chat about it rationally.
0: Yeah. So David Glatzel does believe that he was possessed as a child and you reenact that in the film. And yeah. it is scary. <laughs> yeah. I am. I am a person who has a hard time watching scary films. And I was like doing the uh, this is an audio medium, but the listeners won't. I'm putting my hands over my eyes. So was that your goal here was to like make a little bit of a scary film to sort of illustrate the scariness of what David believes happened to him?
2: Yeah, to a certain degree, yes. It was funny, it was a real push and pull in the edit about how far we go. Lights began to flash on and off. You'd hear the glass falling, breaking. Daniel was frantic and he was screaming. He's here, he's here, he's over the house. A few scenes did end up on the cutting room floor that were scarier. But the problem is when you start showing too much you sort of come down on the fact that this really did happen, and we're sort of saying this really did happen. So it was a real balance, um, you know. And there's a balance that we found in the edit. But when David sat down um, in front of my camera to do the interview, I never had—I didn't have a clue what David was going to say. The first question I asked him was, "So David, tell me—you know—were you possessed by the devil?" And he, he turned around and said he was. And we weren't sure if he was going to say that or not. We didn't know which way he was going to—which way he was going to lean, either towards Carl or over towards Allen.
0: Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what David talked about? So it's 1980. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about the Glatzel family in 1980, like where they were and the position that David was in when he says this, po- this possession allegedly sure. happened?
2: Well, the Glatzels were a very sort of blue-collar family. Uh, the dad was a construction worker. The mum was a stay-at-home mom. They, there's three brothers and a sister, Debbie Glatzel. And she was engaged, or she'd recently got engaged to Arnie Johnson, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. And Arnie and Debbie had decided they wanted to live together. So they rented a house in the town over, a place called Newtown. And uh, this is the first time they were actually going to live together. And the whole family went over the day before the big move to really clean it up. Um, David was the youngest member of the family. He was 10 years old. And he was given the task of um, sweeping up the upstairs bedroom in the house in Newtown.
0: And then, of course, he has this incident there. He feels like he's being pushed around, and that's when the possession happens. And then he starts to have these incidents at home. The family says they all experience them, too. So, of course, whatever is going on with him requires some members of the family to kind of either be complicit in the story or experience the thing that he is is experiencing. So he is having some sort of outbursts, right? That's right. And they start documenting it. Now... I have a question because I think, given what we hear Carl say later, it is—is is it fair to say, because I, as an observer and somebody who listened to the tapes, that some of the language that he uses is kind of like age-appropriate for for the for the outburst? I mean, it's it's like it's like yes, he's swearing, he's having these like very shocking outbursts, but it's almost like in my mind, language he would know at at his age. Does that make sense?
2: It does. Yeah, it's quite childish, um, I suppose, in a way. I mean, he does swear, he does kind of curse. Juvenile for um, a demon. But it's juvenile. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it it is pretty juvenile. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But the family did um, document it, you know. So he started having these outbursts and and according to David and Alan, they didn't know what to do. But then when the Warrens came along, they were told to start documenting it because they needed to provide proof and evidence to the diocese to be able to get an exorcism. So th- that's why the Polaroids and the audio came in. And that's what's so important was this is the first time this audio and these Polaroids have ever been shown. You know, this yeah. this is this is these are laying in a drawer for 20-odd, 30-odd years, you know.
0: I do want to ask you about the Polaroids and audio, but first tell us about the Warrens. How did they get involved in this case?
2: So the Warrens, um, they seem to have latched onto every single creaking floorboard and strange (laughs) goings on in an attic in Connecticut over a period of years and years. These people are telling us these horrible stories, but we have to ourselves experience this before we accept it. We have to see it. We have to feel it. We have to know it's there before we say, yes, this home is haunted. And because they were literally one one town over from uh, Brookfield, they used to do a circuit. So they'd go around to the local libraries and they'd give talks and Jenny Glatzel and Debbie Glatzel, the mum and, and daughter, went to see. We went to see them in the library give a talk. So when this all happened, they they called them up. They were they were quite well known. They had their own channel. They had advertisements in the in the newspapers, you know, offering their services. So they are the original Ghostbusters.
0: Hmm. So Chris, I have to ask, and um, you know, maybe you've answered this before, but you got these tapes that hadn't been heard in many many years. You, at one point, heard this audio for the very first time, and you heard these sounds and you heard these words. What was your like gut initial feeling when you heard this audio for the very first time?:
2: So I'm an enormous skeptic, so I didn't believe that they were real. Um, I, I didn't believe um, that they were genuine. I believed that they were fake and they'd faked them somehow. <sighs> Um, So that's, it's always very difficult when you go into a film like this, you try to be kind of open-minded, but, but when you're talking about demons and possessions, I I come from, one of the main reasons that I got this film was because I come from a a background quite similar to the Glatzel Boys, raised as a, in a quite a strong Catholic household. So, you know, the devil and God were big parts of my uh, childhood. But having said that, I am a, an enormous skeptic. Uh, and I didn't believe that they were real. I, I believe that they had been faked. I just wasn't quite of sure how they had been faked. I wasn't quite sure what the um, the full story was and, and what the Warrens' involvement in the fakery was. That's what we set out to find out, really.
0: Hmm. So those photos and audio that the Warrens encouraged them to take, um, so you first saw those. So they were in Carl's possession this whole time.
2: They belonged to Judy Glatzel. Okay. Um, and then when she passed away, um Carl inherited those photographs and the audio tapes,
0: okay, so what did you make of those when you first saw them i, I I've got to wonder that because the photos are really shocking
2: they are there's there's also because they're polaroids, they have this real quality to them that is you can just tell they haven't been tampered with. um they are really shocking, and when you hear the tapes for the first time, there's elements of the tapes that are really shocking and yeah. and put together it is quite quite frightening really. <laughs> My hand. Get my Stop. Stop. Leave this there's definitely a small child small boy suffering there in some some shape or form we're not quite sure you know i i have my beliefs but um i don't want to sort of cloud everybody else's judgment but I, they are quite shocking
0: yeah, I mean, the, the sound of his voice on the tapes is shocking. Whatever he's going through is shocking, yeah. um, you know, whether or not it's, you know, product of his environment, something going on that he's being encouraged to do or something that's actually happening inside of him is shocking. What really struck me was the reaction of his father. His father, we hear, believed that there was something going on with him, that he was, you know, suffering something, uh, s- something for mental illness initially. Right. And he was the doubter in the family.
2: Yeah, him and Carl were were definitely, there was two sides of the family. Judy, Debbie, Arnie, and, and David really believed, and Alan really believed that something was, was happening. Carl and his dad um, really believed that something was happening. There was a, a mental breakdown of some variety with David. Um, David was tested by a psychiatrist and found to be normal. Uh, there was nothing um, out of the ordinary. He wasn't experiencing schizophrenia. Yes, but the dad was a, very much a, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting involved in this. He would work two jobs uh, in the day and at night to be able to not be in the house. He hated what was going on in the house uh, and he didn't want any part of it. Carl, Carl really wasn't around as much as the other brothers. He he also found it very annoying and disturbing and, and didn't like what was going on. So he took himself away. He was slightly older uh, when this was happening.
0: I have to say the reenactments that you show near the end of the film with Carl's skepticism... Um, I don't know how you cast this film, but the reenactments are just incredible in this film, I have to say. And I'm not like usually like a big reenactment fan, so to speak. But I have to say, like, um, they're very effective and affecting in in many ways. Um, But at one point with the, you know, with the real life people, you do have them listen to audio of David in the middle of an incident of of supposed possession. How did they react listening to that audio?
2: David was really disturbed, actually, um, by the audio. He was really upset. He had never heard it. It had never been played to him, ever. Um, so he, he hadn't heard it. If he had heard it, it was when he was back, when he was 10 years old, 9, 10 years old, um, and really was quite upset. It was terrifying, because all of a sudden he'll start screaming and fighting, and there's no one there. Um, he was also quite upset by the photographs that he claimed he'd never seen, as well, and and didn't remember some of the events happening there. And it was it was really affecting, actually, because you know, for what everyone thinks of David, I I, I really enjoyed spending time with him, and we really got to know each other very well, and and we had a good relationship. And I know, I, like I said before, I don't believe he was lying to me, and I believe that he genuinely believes that something happened to him, but he's he's sort of he's still unsure about what happened to him in that house. He thinks he was possessed, but, but he was such a small child. He's probably not equipped mentally at that age to understand what's going on. You know, but he definitely saw something, as far as he's concerned, and I believe him. He definitely had some strange experience in that house that he believed was demonic.
0: So the Warrens did um, you know, want all this evidence to convince the church. And ultimately, the church, I guess, was convinced. Um, but it doesn't escape my notice that it does seem to most often be people with religious backgrounds, churchgoers who are reporting um demonic possession, right?
2: That's right. I mean, that's the sort of get out of jail really that that they have is that if you don't have faith, you'll never see anything. So mm. it's it's that's that's what they kept saying. You know, if you're not a believer, then it'll never appear to you. So that's why it never appeared to Carl and that's why it never appeared to his dad. Um but yeah they everybody that believed uh it was demonic came from a strong Catholic, essentially Catholic background.
0: Hmm. So someone makes the comment about how difficult it is to get the Catholic Church to get involved. Um, Like, there's a lot of paperwork, which, you know, in my mind, I was imagining like a form with like bubbles to fill out or something. I don't know. Um, So can you just talk a little bit about what you learned about the church's willingness or unwillingness to get involved in these kind of situations? I mean, granted, this was a, a long time ago, but it does even seem strange to me that they would, you know what I mean, get involved.
2: Yeah, but the strange thing is that every year, especially with our the the most recent pope, is that every year hundreds of exorcists are trained in Vatican City. Now you know there's and there's hundreds of exorcists in America, so they are they're busier than ever. Um, Make of that what you will, but but so they they believe that these things exist. They they definitely believe in the existence of evil and the existence of demonic possession. The trouble is, it, it gives the church such bad press. So they like to investigate it as thoroughly as they possibly can before they then send an exorcist to deal with the problem. Hmm. They'll they'll go through every single avenue, really, uh, until the only outcome is to have an exorcism. Hmm. Um, even in the film, you know, there's amazing moment where Alan describes the cardinal all dressed in red arriving at the house, but he was he was driving a red Porsche. And, you know, it's sort of, you know, that's about as high up as they go. They sent the big guns in to find out what was happening in that house. Um, and only then, once it had once been proven to their liking, did they allow an exorcism. It's a kind of a gray area between what is a full-on exorcism and what is a deliverance, of they're called. They do seem to be the same thing, essentially. But but the church did say that there was a, a lesser exorcism they performed on David Glatzel.
0: And what actually happened? During that exorcism, like what is that process? Uh,
2: it's a system of prayers, essentially. It's a system of prayers over over the subject until and there's a very unique and special prayer that they say, which is what the priest is is reciting in the um, in the dramatic reconstructions. Uh, that is meant to cast out the evil demon, essentially, uh, and that is a is a Latin prayer um, that's been used for for you know centuries, I would imagine.
0: So at this point, the focus pulls away from David and on to Debbie's boyfriend, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. What do we know about his background and how he found himself here in the middle of this minor exorcism, you know, happening to David?
2: Well, Arnie's interesting in that he was, um, him and Debbie were very, very close. And he was only the only real male adult in the family home when this was happening. Carl Sr. Had, had decided that he didn't want anything to do with with what was happening to David. So he, like I say, he took two jobs and disappeared. Carl Jr. was staying at friend's house, couch surfing, um, really, to avoid it. So Arnie was the kind of the dad figure in the house. And so he felt a real closeness to David and wanted to look after David. And also because his girlfriend at the time, or his fiancée at the time, loved her, her little brother and, and wanted to help him. So, So that's the role that he played. He was the dad in all this.
0: So can you talk about this incident that happens where there's this struggle going on during this minor possession where Arnie allegedly then is the one who onboards the devil or is I guess is what allegedly happens right
2: So during the exorcism or during the lesser exorcism Arnie became incredibly concerned about David he said that he turned blue and was choking and it was at that point that Arnie gripped David and allegedly said you know, leave the boy alone. Come on, take me on, take me on. And what our priest figure in the in the documentary, Father Max, talks about is that's uh, transmigration. What happened was a, a thing called transmigration, where the evil entity can leave the possessed person and enter any number of people who are involved in the exorcism. It could be the priest, it could be family member. It's just whoever's really decides to latch onto. Mm. And because Arnie had challenged the demon, it went for Arnie allegedly.
0: So after that, did Arnie display any of the behaviors that David had displayed before this exorcism?
2: There were a couple of instances. Um, There was one instance where Arnie went to church with Debbie and started shouting profanities and was asked to leave. And he can't remember any of that. Um, We didn't tell that story because he can't remember it. He was only told that this happened to him. There was another incident where Arnie was sitting on uh, the Glatzel driveway in Debbie's car. And suddenly the car hurtled forward. uh, The gas pedal was down to the floor and the handbrake was on. uh, And Arnie couldn't control the car and it crashed into a ditch. And Arnie believed that that was the devil really having a go at him. And he was annoyed at him and was basically out to get Arnie for what he did.
0: Huh. So, can you walk me through the crime sort of at the center of this? What happened when Alan Bono, Arnie and Debbie's landlord, was ultimately stabbed and killed?
2: So, that day, um, Arnie had taken the day off work, because he wasn't feeling particularly well. He picked up his sisters um, from the town over and was planning to spend a day with them and Debbie. So they went out for pizza. Um, they had a few beers and then they went back to their uh, apartments, which was above the kennels in Brookfield in Connecticut. And Arnie describes it and Debbie describes that uh, Alan Bona was getting more and more drunk and getting louder and louder. And Arnie was really uncomfortable being around him in that situation. So they decided to leave. And as they were going down the steps, Alan Bono grabbed Arnie's sister and wouldn't let her go. And then the way Arnie describes it is that he blanked out. And then when he came around, he was standing over uh, Alan Bono with the knife and he'd killed him. And I asked him, I said, why am I here? what's going on? What's going on? And they said, well,
1: you just killed your friend. I said, I did not. I I totally did not believe it. I said, you're totally wrong. Alan's fine.
2: We left the house. He goes, no, he's dead and you killed him. So he doesn't remember the stabbing at all. Uh, It's Debbie that sort of narrates the story of the stabbing. And she says that something came over Arlie that night. His eyes turned black. And he just entered this sort of rage. And that's when he stabbed and killed Alan Bono. Hmm.
0: So when Arnie was arrested, the press dubbed it the devil made me do it case. Um, The judge disallowed such a defense because it was impossible to prove. I was surprised that such a defense was allowed elsewhere. (laughs) Uh, Were you surprised that such a defense had been allowed before elsewhere?
2: Yeah, it it was insane. Actually, we re- the the trouble is, I think that everyone's a little bit embarrassed about the fact that it's been allowed elsewhere because it's very difficult. There's the, we found one of the smallest articles in a in a London newspaper about the defense being used in the UK. Uh, we did some digging, and it it's sort of it's very difficult to sort of show it, but yeah, it's been used three times in the UK, and in each case, it's caused the trial to collapse. So it hasn't proved it hasn't been proved that. The devil defense is a, a defense that has been taken, but it does prove that that it, it throws enough doubt onto the situation for it to um, have an effect on the trial outcome.
1: Hmm.
0: Despite the fact that what Debbie describes, Arnie going into sort of a, a dark rage and turning into a different person when he killed somebody, is not dissimilar to the kind of rages that people could go into when they also kind of, you know, go dark and exactly. go into a rage when they kill somebody, exactly. which I found very interesting.
1: Yes, um, yeah.
0: So I want to talk about this part in the film where you then pivot and you turn to Carl's perspective, which is so interesting to me as a viewer. He then describes an incident with his father that, um, you know, sort of reinforced his doubt that David was possessed by the devil. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So for for days and weeks, every night, pretty much, this this sort of theater would start where David would start growling. Uh, Debbie would get the, the Polaroid camera. And um, Alan would grab the microphone and then they would record and document what was happening. And I think he just really got everyone down, especially Carl Jr. He had to sort of sit and witness this most nights. I think that's why he did take himself off. But this one particular night, uh, he was watching watching it play out and his dad burst into the room and he smacked David across the head and, and pushed him down onto the couch and sofa and said, this has got to stop. You know, this is this is no more. I've had enough. You know, this has got to stop.
1: All of a sudden, my father came out.
2: You don't
0: deserve to love, David. Get
1: up. You hear slap. Get over there sit down. He goes. Now I said to stop. Enough. No more. It's got to stop. And sure enough, the uh, devil sat down and was very quiet. So I'm glad at least he listens to my father.
2: And the interesting thing, and and Carl does say the story of a smile on his face, you know, the devil did listen to his dad. The devil was scared of Carl Sr. Now he's a big man, but he's not bigger than the devil. Mm. And David just sat down and everyone calmed down and, 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 uh, Carl Sr. went to bed. So it is interesting. It it is sort of, it's very telling really.
0: Yeah, I mean, Carl's sort of reconstruction of the entire sequence of events is also so interesting to me. It reminds me very much of a like a wrongful conviction reconstruction where they talk about how somebody could make a false confession by hearing details and then repeating those details later. He talks about how the Warrens came in and talked in front of David about yeah. what might happen to David and yeah. that how then David may have absorbed some of that and then... Uh, reenacted it, basically, and then was then probably reinforced to reenact it by people taking photos and so forth. Um, and I was wondering, did do you think Carl made those observations at that age? Or is that something he kind of put together later as an adult? Because it was just so astute.
2: I think Carl's had a lot of time to think about what's been going on and what's happened. But I think that he is an intelligent man. He's a really intelligent man. And I think he he figured this out. He knew that this wasn't right. He knew in his heart when he was a young man that these people were lying and they were motivated by fame and money, essentially. Mm. Carl is definitely hurt by what happened. And I think he he really wanted to tell his truth. You know, he really wanted to, to people to listen to him and, and not sort of blow it up into a, a big horror movie, mm. you know. Um, but to listen to rationally, the trouble is, it's not as much fun. You know, that there's a, so much fun to be had by playing out the story of David and being doing the big horror movie job on it. You know, you can really like The Conjuring 3 turned it all up to 11. You know, it's really off the charts. And I think Carl just, he has the much quieter story where it, it didn't happen. And, and the reason why is X, Y, Z. Right.
0: You know. Right. Well, let's talk about one of those other big factors because you uncover the something that I guess has you know never been talked about before and that we've never heard about before. He talks about something profoundly disturbing um, that he discovered about his mother that changes his view also of what happened. Then can you can you talk about this big revelation?
2: So the Somnec story. Really, we didn't have a clue about that uh, story or that element of the story when we first started. That came really from sitting down and talking to Carl.
1: I believe my mother used Almanacs to control all us boys and my dad. At the end of the day, if everybody's tired and exhausted, guess what? Everybody's going to rest and just sit down. There's no more problems.
2: And this is something that Carl has, has known about and thought about really since the death of his mum which has only been a few years and it was a real revelation to Carl as well and it was almost like the light bulb went on over his head when he realised when he found these messages from his mum saying everyone has had their medicine today Mm. and the more he dug into what was happening and what Judy Glatzer was doing to the brothers uh, the more shocked he was and the more upset he was really because it, it kind of does explain everything really
1: But Zominex has long-lasting effects on people. Mood swings, weight gain, and hallucinations. (laughs) It is very possible that my brother David has ingested enough of this stuff over the years where he did see things.
2: And for me, it it sort of proved in a way that David wasn't lying. Because if, if it was the case, if Judy Glatzer was drugging her family then these hallucinations that David were experiencing were real. The motivations of the mother and who should have known better, who should have really stopped what she was doing, is questionable. It throws into it throws a real kind of magnifying glass on her motivations and why she was doing this. But you can imagine it from a son's point of view. That was such a shock for Carl, so he he really didn't really want to talk about it too much because it was still really hard for him to kind of comprehend that his mum had been doing this.
1: Hmm.
0: I'm curious i'm um, i'm I'm not certain of the order in which you talked to the brothers you talked about talking to David last um but um what do David and Alan view about Carl's views on the past did you did you get a chance to you know debrief them on it and get their reactions?
2: We did We spoke to Alan first, Alan was the first person um that we actually uh, got into interview, and then it was Carl uh and then finally David. There's no love lost between the brothers, I think they're they're kind of Agree with that, really. Carl firmly believes that Alan and David are not telling the truth. He firmly believes that the the reason why David was was acting the way he was was because of the somnex, or because either it's either the somnex or they were just faking outright lying. But David and Alan believe these things happened. You know, they they clearly believe this these things happened, and they just don't think Carl was around enough and there enough to experience them. And, and they just think that he felt left out, and they think that there is some jealousy there. So, so they they have very different opinions uh, about what happened and and about each other's view of events.
0: Hmm. I mean, if we are to believe this theory that Carl has, which you know, of course, we don't we can't know that for certain. I mean, that says a lot about what Arnie did potentially, right?
2: Yeah, it does. We, you know, we we did go back and we did sort of speak to Arnie and sort of say that we are, because we were very truthful. We, we didn't say to any of them. We we did specifically say that we're going to tell your story as you tell it. We weren't going to make a judgment. We we're going to lay listen to all of you tell your story and we we're going to gather the evidence and, and lay it out there for people to make their own minds up. We we knew that we could never convince believers that this was untrue. We knew that we could never believe people who didn't believe it, skeptics that that it was true and that we weren't setting out to that, but. Well, I think what we tried to do was was to interview these people together to get them to tell their story and then leave it up to the audience to to believe what they want to believe.
0: Yeah. So if you look at Arnie today, a man who felt so strongly that he'd been possessed by the devil, so we shouldn't be surprised that he has strong religious views. Should we today?
2: No, and and you know Arnie is uh, a guest speaker on these paracons, you know, he's mm-hmm. sort of, you know, it's it's a it's becoming a family business really, I suppose. Um the whole family was involved in in the him and Debbie were involved in the Conjuring movies. And yeah, it's no surprise that Arnie is, you know, a deeply religious person now. And that was something that he he went on about a lot during the interview. He was very, you know, he, he does seem to be a found God.
0: Hmm. So I have a final question for you, Chris Holt, because this film is, it's a couple of things and I'm wondering which one you think it is for viewers. So, you know, I think it's a quandary whether some viewers are going to wonder whether or not David... Uh, was possessed by the devil or not. So maybe that's one of the things. It's also, I think, a question of whether or not there was justice for Alan Bono's murder. But also, this is really a film about family, right? And what can happen to a family when they go through something like this or when something like this happens to them. What kind of film is the devil on trial for you?
2: I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head, really. I mean, it was always about, for me, it was about a family. It was about these three brothers who experienced something really quite horrific in their lives and they all have different ideas about what actually happened and the damage that it's done to that family really um i mean there are horror elements and there's true crime elements um so it ticks those boxes but at the end of the day it's it's still alan carl and uh, david sitting there having to live with this and having to live with this story that's hung over them And, and it's affected all of them really and I have two brothers. You know, I, I know what it's like when you fall out and you bicker. But it feels to me that, that it's, it's irrevocably damaged their relationship. So it was about family, really, and a kind of very damaged family.
0: Well, it's certainly a fascinating look at that family and the story around them. Chris Holt, The Devil on Trial. Um, it is fascinating, interesting, Thank and compelling you. film. Thank you so much for talking to me about it.
2: It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Chris Holt. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.